um, five by fifteen uh, audience. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 quite an interesting um, time to kind of reflect on um, my uh, writing and and work. I guess over more than a decade because I've I've long believed. I mean, as Daisy said, I was the Moscow bureau chief between 2007 and 2011, that the regime of Vladimir Putin, now in power for, for, for more than 20 years, was not <clears throat> only domestically repressive, which we saw in the treatment of, of the Russian opposition, of, of human rights uh, activists, of, of journalists, but it was also internationally dangerous and, and, and revisionist. And we've really had plenty of warning of, of what was going to happen uh, in Ukraine. There have been multiple dark episodes you might you might say um leading up to it um including for example the 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 teapot murder in 2006 of alexander Litvinenko in london with polonium about which i wrote a a book a very expensive poison uh and also when i was in moscow the war in georgia in 2008 where um russian troops kind of overruled overruled georgia in in what now looks like a sort of dress rehearsal for um, the annexation of Crimea in 2014, um, and of course the kind of full-blown invasion that we saw um, on February the 24th. Um, and so I've, I've, you know, been charting that, and I've also been trying to chart, um, especially in Shadow State, my most recent book, um, the sort of what you might call hybrid war, Russian hybrid war, and the attempt by the Putin regime to subvert and undermine Western democracies and our political processes. And, and the two biggest examples of those, both from 2016, were, were the covert support, um, sweeping and systematic, as Robert Mueller put it, for Donald Trump uh, in America. And of course, the kind of under, under the table push that the Russians gave Brexit, um, a story that, that both Boris Johnson and, and Theresa May were extremely reluctant to investigate. So, so basically, we, we had warning. We had warning of the nature of this regime. We had warning of the way Putin sees the world and exists in, in a, a parallel reality. And, and I was always convinced, actually, from, I would say, the autumn of last year, that we were moving towards some kind of crisis slash invasion in Ukraine. And, and the context is this, is that Putin had spent two years extremely isolated. I mean, he's really reduced to spending time with a very small group of like-minded, uh, ultra-hawkish advisors. Um, and, you know, what he produced in the pandemic was an essay published last summer on the Kremlin's website with a rather uh, curious title. Uh, I think it was, you know, The Historical Unity of Russia and Ukraine, where essentially he argued that the Russia and Ukraine were one people and that Ukraine did not exist. This has long been his view, that it's a kind of sub-sovereign not country uh, occupying lands which are what Putin called historical Russia. Now, um, uh, I mean, I've, I've read this, you, you don't need to read it, but I mean, there are two kind of clear takeaways which I think pointed us towards the war in Ukraine. One um, is this rather astonishing critique of, of, of Lenin, who, whose waxy body sits in Red Square in its mausoleum just around the corner from, from, from Vladimir Putin's office. Putin basically blames Lenin for creating modern Ukraine in 1924 and making it a socialist republic uh, and says that the, 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 the communists were responsible for this fiction. And the other thing which made me think, look, he's really going to do it, was that Putin was essentially channeling in this essay classic 
uh, Russian imperial thinking from the 19th century. It's almost as if he's playing at being Nicholas I or you know, Peter the Great or Catherine the Great, and that Putin had convinced himself, possibly at a time when he's ill, we, we don't know, there's lots of speculation about his health, convinced himself that, that he, he had this sort of great, uh, almost messianic, religious task to unite Ukraine, uh, unite the sort of lost brethren, orthodox brethren of Ukraine with, with great Russia. Um, and so I started going to Ukraine in, in uh, I mean, I've been there on and off for 15 years, but I, I, I made a trip, I made a film in <clears throat> December of last year. I went to the front line with, uh, just outside Donetsk, which has been held by Russian-backed separatists since 2014. I got was shot at by a Russian sniper and, and went around these kind of First World War uh, trenches where, where Ukrainian soldiers were facing off against their Russian adversaries. Uh, and then I went back in January, in late January of this year, um, and I went to Mariupol, which is this port city on the Sea of Azov, vibrant, Ukrainian-controlled, European, with artists, with entrepreneurs, with great parks. And... Everyone I spoke to in Kiev said that the Mariupol would be the first target. And so I made another film, again, on the front line with separatists. Uh, and there's one scene I keep, I keep thinking about. It just, I can't get it out of my head, which was that on my last night there, in what turned out to be about three weeks before the invasion, uh, I, I went to, a, I had a, a restaurant in a kind of cellar tavern. And it was one of those sort of classic party scenes where the, the men were sitting very awkwardly um, uh, uh, you know, around a table and the women were all kind of dancing with each other and having a great time. And I just, when I look back at that scene, I mean, we now know between 15 and 20,000 people have been killed in Mariupol by, by Russian bombs and missiles and shelling and grads. And I just, almost like something out of a medieval woodcut, I see this figure of, of, of death kind of almost among the dancers pulling them by the sleeve because... Uh, you know, Mariupol, Mariupol is gone. I mean, it, it it's it's just disappeared. It's been it's been a face from the map. Um, and so, I, I kept going to Kiev amid alarming briefings from the U.S. Uh, and and actually the U.K. intelligence community who got the war in Iraq wrong, but who were saying pretty loudly in February that Vladimir Putin was going to invade. I mean, how he was going to do it, we didn't know. Um, and then on, on February the 23rd, I had dinner with Andrei Kurkov, fabulous, wonderful Ukrainian novelist, uh, a friend of mine. I, by the way, I can recommend his book, his most recent book, Grey Bees, set in, set in the gray zone between separatists uh, and Ukraine, Ukraine. Um, and we were having dinner and I had a call basically from a Ukrainian contact saying the invasion will happen at four in the morning. Um, and so, you know, we, we made grim jokes, uh, went back to my hotel, and a, a little, about half an hour later than scheduled, we hear the first explosions. And, and somehow, you know, there is, there is a gap between knowing something, you know, probably will happen from an analytical perspective and the, 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 the horror of war um, engulfing everything. And for me, it became real a couple of hours later where I was sitting in the bomb shelter with plenty of other journalists and this Ukrainian family wandered in. It was six in the morning from the streets. And these little bleary-eyed kids sat on two big hotel chairs. And they were sort of doing their coloring books. And I just sort of, 
I just thought actually I tweeted about it, but I just thought actually that this this war is not a story of of high politics. I mean, it is. It's not a story about international relations. It's not a story about the 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 madness of of one man. Preeminently, it's a story about civilians, uh, uh, about families, about separation, about shelling, about death, or about maiming. It's 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 a human tragedy. It's the biggest war on the European continent for 80 years. Um, and what was also clear was it was one of what you might call, um, there was a kind of unambiguous moral clarity about it because Ukraine, which since I've been going there has been moving inexorably in a kind of pro-Western, you know, democratic European direction. There was an attempt, uh, really a colonial attempt, a blatant colonial attempt to, to conquer it, to subjugate it, to, to bring it back into this neo-Soviet Soviet sphere of control and lugubrious domination. Um, and what, what, what's also fascinating is, is the way in which this, this invasion has, I would say, semi-failed. I mean, the Russians have conquered a huge amount of territory in the south and east of Ukraine. Mariupol, the city I visited in January, has fallen. The last defenders have, have gone out into captivity and torture. But there's been this astonishing fight back by the Ukrainians. Um, and and what, what strikes me is just how Putin has uh, fallen victim to his own kind of mythic thinking. I mean, he he believes state Russian state propaganda says that Ukraine is run by Nazis. And he thought that the people living in Ukraine would sort of genuinely rise up and welcome liberation. And of course, the opposite has happened. There's, there's been th this brave astonishing, horizontally organized, uh, patriotic uprising where, small example, uh, there was this wonderful uh, stamp uh, released by the Ukrainian post office of, of this famous warship, the Moskva, which, which the Ukrainians had just sunk with two, uh, two missiles uh, with, with, a, with a soldier. It was a symbol of the science. You, a, a Ukrainian soldier uh, doing, you know, Russian warship, go fuck yourself, sign. And there were seven hour queues outside the post office to get this stamp. It, 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 I mean, it's Ukraine is not Russia, contrary to what Putin says. Um, and we, we now see in the east of the country, in the Donbass, which Putin says he wants to conquer, we, we see a heroic attempt to, to hang on to, to territory and to fight back. And, and meanwhile, on my last trip, I'm going back to Ukraine in a couple of days for another kind of reporting assignment. But I, I did a couple of extraordinary trips to the areas which were occupied by Russian soldiers for over a month, to Bucha, to Gostomel, to Irpin, to Borodienka, also up to Chernobyl. And it was just a hellscape of blown out uh, Russian tanks with Zs, but also actually with Vs and Os. In the north, they were marked with Vs and Os. Uh, a, a story of imperial humor, hubris, but also of, of astonishing sort of cruelty and barbarism. Basically, what happened in Brucha was that the Russians swept in and they carried out what was called uh, a, a zachiska, um, which is a sweep operation. And they went from house to house. And, and I, I keep thinking about this. I told the story of one 26-year-old guy, and I'll name him. It's important to name people. He's called Volodymyr Chernichenko. And he had taken photos of a wiped out column, Russian armored column in Bucha, sent them to a girl he knew. 
And these Russian soldiers knocked on the door and they confiscated his phone. Uh, and they found the images and they said to him, T. Josh Snami, using the informal T form uh, in Russian, they said, you're coming with us. And, and they took him to a kind of house down the road. His aunt, who told me the story, shinned up an apple tree and watched him being interrogated. They'd broken his arm. Uh, he was all bloody. He was crying. He was sobbing. And they were saying, where are the Nazis? Where are the Nazis? He was saying, I don't know where the Nazis are. I don't know anything. And they took him away. And they told his mother um, that, that he would be returned after the war and that everything would be well. And then eventually they chaotically retreated in this kind of Mad Max convoy when, when Putin decided to, to give up his attempts to catch a Kiev. Um, and they found his body just around the corner, about 150 meters away um, in, in a cellar. I, I went into it. Uh, I went into it. Uh, and there was a bloodstained mattress. There was a smell of death, uh, which I knew from pre previous reporting stints. Uh, and he was buried in a shallow grave. There are shallow graves all over Ukraine. Um, I, I got a list today of Mariupol, uh, 1,164 people buried in improvised graves. Um, uh, there are, there are uh, in Bucha and elsewhere, you know, there, there are numerous stories of execution of, of, of people being kept uh, and killed. Um, it, it is, I've seen, I've done the war in, war in Iraq and Afghanistan, I've been in Syria, I've been in Georgia, I've done a lot of conflict reporting. This is the worst I've seen. And I would just say, you know, by way of closing, that I mean, this this war has has shaken up our international politics. It, it has, it is, I mean, it was Lenin who said, said there are, there are decades where nothing happens and there are weeks where everything happens. These have been weeks in which everything has happened. I mean, the Germans have abandoned pacifism. The Swedes and the Finns are joining NATO. Uh, the UK has shed some of its sort of post-Brexit estrangement from its continental neighbors. The, the US has, has found a role under Joe Biden is, is, is providing $48 billion uh, in equipment and, and aid, which may yet turn the war in Ukraine's favor um, to this, this beleaguered country of 40, 45 million people. Um, but... We, we have a situation of a grinding war where, where this massive lethal force unleashed by Russia may yet prevail as it did in the Second World War, at huge costs in terms of men and materiel, as it did in the Finnish war. And this kind of mighty bear may tear more chunks out of Ukraine. We just have to wait and see. But it, it's the most important foreign story um, of our times. It's the biggest human tragedy. It's the largest refugee crisis since the Second World War. And uh, I'm just grateful to you, 5 by 15 um, viewers, uh, for your support, for your passion, uh, and for your interest in it. Uh, keep up. It's going to be a long conflict. And Slava, Ukraine.